0: Google blog, January 12th, 2010. Quote, like many other well-known organizations, we face cyber attacks of varying degrees on a regular basis. In mid-December, we detected a highly sophisticated and targeted attack on our corporate infrastructure, originating from China, that resulted in the theft of intellectual property from Google. However, it soon became clear that what at first appeared to be solely a security incident, albeit a significant one, was something quite different. Hi, I'm Ran Levy, and you're listening to Malicious Life in collaboration with CyberEasy. In our previous episode, we learned how hackers, probably associated with the Chinese government, exploited a zero-day bug in Microsoft's Internet Explorer browser to infiltrate Google's internal network via a maliciously crafted link. After establishing the probable attribution of Operation Aurora, we tried to decipher the motive behind the attack. One potential motive were Google's intentional or unintentional attempts at bypassing the Chinese censorship, which imposed strict limits on the company's culture of supporting free and open information sharing. But, as I hinted at the end of the last episode, this culture clash was only part of the picture. News that Google was hacked would have been enough excitement for one day. But it was another revelation, later in the same blog post, that surprised everyone. Quote, these attacks and the surveillance they have uncovered, combined with the attempts over the past year to further limit free speech on the web, have led us to conclude that we should review the feasibility of our business operations in China end quote. The Google.cn project, a major step for the company just half a decade in the making, now looked like it would be scrapped. Why such a harsh and dramatic response? The reason began to unravel only hours after Google's post went live, when Adobe revealed that they too had been breached. Soon came the mudslide, Lockheed Martin, Yahoo, Symantec, Northrop Grumman, Dow Chemical, Morgan Stanley. In total, 35 of America's largest companies had been linked to the same attack. So by this point, two things were clear. Number one, this was not just a Google problem. Number two, if this was a big problem before, now it was a big, big, big problem. A large-scale cyber front had been conducted by a significant power against elite American corporations, and by all accounts, it succeeded. What those hackers got their hands on was much more than Google had ever let on. It's difficult to quantify just how vital source code is to a digital company. For Google, Yahoo, Adobe, it's the bedrock for everything. What's hard to believe with this in mind is how easy it was for Aurora's hackers to break into the source code databases of these 35 major companies. A McAfee white paper published three months after the attacks did not name which of the 35 companies they investigated. What they found was the widespread use of almost totally unsecured SCMs, source code management systems. In particular, many of the companies, indeed many of the top 1,000 companies in America, were using the same SCM provided by a California-based company called Perforce. According to the report, Perforce isn't necessarily less secure than its competitors. But that's only because the bar was so low. The holes in Perforce SCM were big and plentiful. Some were perhaps understandable. Consider, developers who like to work on their personal computers will often copy shared code, work on it locally, and then paste back their updated version it's convenient to do so. You can work from home this way or from a coffee shop. But giving full access to source code databases to individuals whose computers may not be subject to the same scrutiny as corporate databases typically are opens up new attack paths. Think of it like having a vault full of money and giving the combination to everyone who works at the bank. Not every teller will protect that information perfectly well, so it's not smart for them all to have the same highest-level access to that money. Perforce default configuration did not protect against the untrained employee. That meant that instead of having to break into the heart of all these major American corporations, the Aurora hackers could have achieved the same effect simply by spear individual employees. Other holes in the Perforce software are even less easily justified than that. 1. Any unauthenticated user could create an account without first needing a password. 2. It ran, by default, as a system-level process, lending its users the highest-level root privileges on host systems. Nowhere in the documentation for Perforce for Windows was there any indication that running as root might be dangerous. Three, it stored all of its data in clear text and communicated all data between endpoints and their servers without encryption. So any packet sniffer or man-in-the-middle attack would allow a hacker to read highly sensitive data, source code, user activity, login credentials, as easily as they could an article on yahoo.com. Or they could intercept and modify it in transit. In total, McAfee identified 14 major categories of vulnerabilities in Perforce. I could list them all, but your car ride to work is only so long. With help from even just one or two of these many security holes, Chinese hackers were able to siphon off significant proprietary code from those 35 major companies. We don't actually know what they took or what they ended up using it for, but the possibilities are staggering. They could have used it to copy what American companies owned for Chinese companies to use. The military could have used state-of-the-art technologies taken from companies such as Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Stolen software could have been examined to determine previously unknown zero-day vulnerabilities useful in targeting end-users of such products in the future. And on top of simply taking it, the hackers also could have in theory modified existing code in order to proactively create their own exploits in those companies' software, like a construction worker building their own secret backdoor to a bank vault. McAfee could not determine whether this actually occurred. Doing so would have required the affected companies to diligently cross-reference their existing code with pre-Aurora versions, while accounting for all the legitimate modifications made in the meantime. And that wasn't all. Another piece of evidence sent the FBI and Google into a months-long battle. What Google had failed to disclose from the beginning is that their hackers also managed to break into servers containing many years' worth of highly sensitive information on U.S. surveillance targets. American government officials who spoke to the Washington Post noted that this data would be useful to the Chinese military to determine which of their spies had been compromised. Dave Oxmith, a senior director at Microsoft at the time, found the same motives associated with his company's hack. And yet, neither the U.S. government nor Google or any of the other hacked companies would outright name the Chinese government as their attackers. In fact, amid talks of human rights abuse and caps on freedom of information, the author of the instigating Google blog post went out of their way to praise the Chinese government. Take, for instance, this paragraph. Quote we have taken the unusual step of sharing information about these attacks with a broad audience, not just because of the security and human rights implications of what we have unearthed, but also because this information goes to the heart of a much bigger global debate about freedom of speech. In the last two decades, China's economic reform programs and its citizens' entrepreneurial flair have lifted hundreds of millions of Chinese people out of poverty. Indeed, this great nation is at the heart of much economic progress and development in the world today. End quote. Isn't that a strange combination of sentences? Like telling a bully, I don't like that you punch me in the face, but I loved your technique. Just about everybody involved in Aurora did this same tightrope act, insinuating without blaming. And so, without any smoking-gun evidence, that's where things stood. For a while. By late 2010, as new evidence in the case slowed to a halt, the story of Operation Aurora fizzled out. Whatever was stolen was replaced. Whoever had stolen it had gotten away with their crimes. Months passed. And then, beginning on November 28, 2010, hundreds of thousands of U.S. State Department cables obtained by Chelsea Manning, then Bradley Manning, were released through Julian Assange's WikiLeaks, then published with names reducted for the public. They suggested that the entire affair, All 35 hacks, billions in damages, trade secrets and more, originated with a single high-ranking politician who didn't like the result of his Google search. Quote, Politburo Standing Committee Member X recently discovered that Google's worldwide site is uncensored and is capable of Chinese language searches and search results. X allegedly entered his own name and found results critical of him. He also noticed the link from google.cn's homepage to google.com, which X reportedly believes is an quote-unquote illegal site. X asked three ministries. Note, most likely the Ministry of Industry and Information Industry, State Council Information Office and Public Security Bureau, to write a report about Google and demand that the company seize its illegal activities, which include linking to google.com. End quote. According to U.S. State Department informants, this Chinese official, frustrated that a negative search result about himself could so easily be reached through Google's Chinese site, discussed how to censor with other members of the Communist Party. Representatives of the party told Google to remove the link to its uncensored worldwide site from its Chinese homepage. Google refused to do so. In response, the Chinese forced three of their major state-owned telecommunication entities to not do any further business with the company and initiated the first mass-scale, international, state-sponsored, cyber-haste in history. In other words, it could be that although the struggle over cultural and political hegemony in China hangs over the story of Aurora like a dark shadow, it didn't drive the actions of those involved. It didn't drive Google to enter China. It didn't drive China to push them out. As we saw, it's probably also a part of a much larger business and or military espionage campaign and maybe even sort of personal vendetta by an angry Politburo member. And even that is still not the whole picture. What is tribal knowledge? No, really, I'm not asking you to go on an expedition to the Amazon forest looking for lost tribes. We're talking about cybersecurity here. In Waterfall's Industrial Security Podcast, Andrew Ginter, VP of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions and a well-known expert in the field of industrial security, and co-host Nate Nelson, senior producer of this podcast, Malicious Life, Talk to experts and thinkers about the principles and practice of securing physical industrial operations, ranging from wind farms and automobile manufacturers to railway switching systems. In the following soundbite taken from a recent episode, Rick Kahn, VP of an industrial protection vendor, mentioned the concept of tribal knowledge. So, what is tribal knowledge and why is it important for cybersecurity? Another thing
1: Rick mentioned was tribal knowledge.
0: Can you talk about why that's important?
1: Yeah, so, you know, that's not a technical thing. That's sort of what's walking around inside people's heads. You know, tribal knowledge is knowledge that's, that's not been written down. It's great as long as people are around but if people retire if people are promoted into other divisions if they leave because they you know join another company you lose the knowledge in their heads and the knowledge can be very important to troubleshooting and and even planning security uh, for instance uh, you know tribal knowledge might be this particular machine this ip address where is it it's in that room over there it's in the third cabinet it's the eighth machine up in the in the rack Knowing things like why they exist—it's one thing to say I got a Windows box with you know seven kinds of software on it with these versions. It's another thing to say and we put it there to do this. So that kind of knowledge that's in people's heads—he called it metadata—is important to capture into the database as well, and makes the, the the information in the database about software and versions much more valuable.
0: Subscribe to Waterfalls Industrial Security Podcast in all podcast-listening apps, both on iOS and Android. Learn more about the podcast at waterfall-security.com. Firstly, Baidu, China's primary internet search provider, had a vested interest in seeing Google off. Even if Baidu had double Google's market share, 30% of China's 800 million Internet users is still quite a lot for a company new to the market without state backing. From the beginning, what Google represented posed a direct threat to what Baidu has always been. From the CableGate memos, quote, the problem the censors were facing, however, was that Google's demand to deliver uncensored search results was very difficult to spin as an attack on China, and the entire episode had made Google more interesting and attractive to Chinese internet users. All of a sudden, X continued, Baidu looked like a boring state owned enterprise. While Google seems very attractive, like the forbidden fruit. It's possible that Baidu, in order to reinstitute their monopoly, conspired with the government to oust their largest rivals. Another Cablegate memo, referencing an American informant in the country, reads, the agent learned that Politburo Standing Committee Member X was working actively with Chinese Internet search giant Baidu against Google's interests in China. End quote. The day after Google's blog post was released, in the early morning, bouquets of flowers were laid at the logo outside Google's headquarters in Tsinghua Science Park, Beijing. Some of the flowers came with heartfelt notes. Quote, thank you for holding values over profits, one read. Google, the mountains can't stop us and we'll get over the wall to find you, said another. As Google's fans mourned the loss, Google employees worried not just for their jobs, but their safety. Some had already been interrogated by the government. There was no stopping more interrogations or even unlawful arrests and imprisonment. Meanwhile, the government began a concentrated effort to drive an unsympathetic narrative. From the leaked Cable gates memos, quote, The immediate strategy, X said, seemed to be to appeal to Chinese nationalism by accusing Google and the U.S. government of working together to force China to accept quote-unquote Western values and undermine China's rule of law, End quote. It's unclear whether this was a manufactured narrative or the real belief of officials who assumed Google shared the same relationship with its home country as Baidu did its. Chinese newspapers claimed that Google's decision was mired in corporate failures and American political interests. The state sponsored People's Daily called the company a quote unquote spoiled child. Another wrote, quote, government regulation is the international norm, so Google's display is really just an affectation. Another said, quote, a lot of people welcomed the news, especially those web users who think Google is not an entirely commercial entity but is rather closely related to the government. As one person put it, "It calls itself a commercial firm, but it has always been the vanguard of an American political chess." End quote. Google's fight was about opening China to free information. When the government pushed for censorship, they pushed back. By shielding Gmail and their other data-storing applications from their Chinese business, they prevented government intrusion into private user accounts. Even being in the country in the first place was a defiant step towards freedom. Except most Chinese people, frankly, didn't care. At its height, in mid-2009, Google held just over a 30% market share, half that of their censored, state-sponsored competitor, Baidu. Most of their base were tech-savvy, democracy-leaning, already using circumvention technologies to get around the Great Firewall before 2006. The rest of China? Well, they were fine with the status quo. A survey conducted by Sina Weibo showed that four of every five Chinese citizens didn't think Google's departure from China would hurt the country's IT industry. Isaac Mao, an expert on the Internet in China, told CNN, You have two categories of Internet users in China. One strongly supports that Google is either staying here without censorship or pulling out of China to keep neutral and independent. But another layer, maybe 90% of Internet users in China, they don't care whether Google leaves or not. End quote. So if most Chinese people didn't feel strongly about Google or their pro-democracy stance, even three or four years in, what was Google actually accomplishing in China? We know inherently that Google.cn was a profit-making venture, not a moral act. What if they looked at the numbers, the constant government pressure, the cost associated with complying, the negative press they were receiving worldwide for compromising on their supposed values, and decided it didn't add up? An incident like Aurora is the perfect cover, a way to go out defiantly, fashioning a bottom-line decision as a moral stance. Perhaps this is a cynical view. Perhaps with a story so expansive as this, without all the evidence we'd need, it really is up to you to decide what's real and what isn't, what's true about the characters of this play, and what's simply the posturing of powerful men with selfish intent. Before you make up your mind, though, let me finish the story. As we come to an end here, we return to January 12th of 2010, the day it all began. Not long after their initial announcement, in an act of defiance, all Google.cn queries were directed through their non-censored Hong Kong search engine, Google.hk. On March 13th, all Google sites were placed behind China's Great Firewall, and any attempt to use them would result in a DNS error. This effectively ended Google China. By 2013, the company retained a national market share below 2%. And this is how it remained, at least until last year, when The Intercept revealed a secret Google project to reestablish a fully censored version of their search engine for use in China, codenamed Dragonfly. The project began in spring 2017, accelerated in 2018, and was set for release in 2019. Only select employees were told about Dragonfly and made to sign non-disclosure agreements. Over two years, company executives, including CEO Sundar Pichai, met with high-ranking Chinese officials. The new Google China would follow all the rules. No pornography, no Tiananmen Square, no George Orwell. A demo app for Android was developed and submitted for approval by the government. All behind closed doors. When protests flared in response to the news of Dragonfly, employees and other protesters were quick to remind Google of their long-time unofficial slogan, a phrase coined in their code of conduct, ingrained into their mythos. The slogan is Don't be evil, and it was cited in the preface to Google's code of conduct. In July 2019, Google terminated Dragonfly, at least for now. A year earlier, in spring 2018, it quietly removed the phrase, don't be evil, from the preface of its code of conduct. It's still there, but now only mentioned in passing in the very last line of the document. That's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Last time I asked you, our listeners, to tell me via Twitter or email what are your small acts of rebellion. Jamie tweeted back, writing, quote, While working for Fortune 250, would conspire with work friends to plant words or concepts into executive space and bet on how long it takes until heard uttered by senior execs in large conference calls. We'd slip the words and concepts into briefings via various colleagues. It was interesting learning how the memetic influence within a small professional network functioned. I'd love to have been able to formally study the process. End quote. Thanks, Jamie. It actually reminds me of a game I used to play with my fellow engineers when I was working for a large company in Israel and we had one of those big company events where the CEO would talk on stage. We created bingo sheets with various buzzwords and business cliches, probably similar to what Jamie is talking about. You know, win-win situation, synergy, drop the ball... It was a fun way to pass the time in an otherwise extremely boring event. Michael wrote via email, The train station in my country sometimes can get congested because the stairs coming from the platform are split in half for people going down and people going up. There is no entry sign for the side you're not supposed to go down, but there's nothing stopping you. This stairway is not very wide, so people congregate waiting to go down on the quote-unquote correct side. Commuting daily has given me short patience, so I say, "fuck it, and go down the other way. Nothing major, but it always makes me smile when I look behind and I see others following me. It only takes one. End quote. Thanks, Michael. I'm guessing you're British, because if there's one thing I noticed, is that Londoners really take their stairs and escalators very seriously. Jack Resider from the podcast Darknet Diaries tweeted, I always opt out of the airport scanning machine and ask for a pat-down. And user at Lymang said much the same. He tweeted, I won't take part in the security theater that DHS and TSA want me just obediently comply with in the U.S. I opt out of any of those kooky full-body scanners. Metal detector is fine, but I'm not giving you anything else. Well, you two are much braver than I am, I must admit. And if you haven't listened to Darknet Diaries yet... Check it out. It's an amazing podcast. Trust me on this one. And last but not least, Josh from New Zealand tweeted, going to sound strange, but two different colored shoelaces, end quote. Well, Josh, that's a small rebellion if I've ever heard one. A big thank you to all of the listeners who answered our question. And since it's so much fun, here's a new one for you. In the episode, I told you about the Chinese official who got angry when he googled himself and found some unflattering results. So my question is, when you google your own name, and sometimes you get results about someone else who has the same name as you, what does this other guy do in his life? Does it seem as if his life is more interesting or boring than your life? Tell us about this other guy or gal with your name. When I Google my name, I get this other Ran Levy, who is obviously much smarter than I am. He is actually Professor Ran Levy, a mathematician who publishes articles with titles like Neurotopology, an interaction between topology and neuroscience, which actually sounds pretty interesting. So Ran, if you're hearing this, let's do an episode about math and the brain although you'll probably do most of the heavy lifting, since I suck at math. Tell us about your other self. You can tweet me your answers at @ranlevi RanLevy, R-A-N-L-E-V-I, or at malicious.life. You can also mail me your answers to ran at Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and full transcripts. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.